Well, today is the very first Sunday in 2020, and like many other churches and businesses and advertisers, you can't help but look at that number 2020 and not think about the word vision, right? And so that's why today we're starting a brand new series called Focus, where we're going to take uh, the next couple of weeks and we're going to really look at what would it take for you to, to focus in and make 2020 your best year that you've ever had, not just in life in general, but in honoring Jesus and glorifying him and doing everything that it is that he would want you to do in this year and then even beyond. And so what we're going to specifically be looking at over the, the next couple of weeks is Jesus' most famous story, his most famous what's called parable. Even if you've never been in a church before, you've heard of this one. You, you may have never even held a Bible before, but you've heard at least the name of this story, and you may even know a little bit of the details of this particular story. But what's really, really interesting and shocking is that there are many Christians that have heard this story many, many, many times, and they still don't completely understand it, nor do they know how to apply it and live it out. So with all that said, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Again, Luke chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 25 here today. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. All the scriptures will be on the screen here behind me. Also, they're there in the program that was provided for you as you came in. Also, if you've got a smartphone, you want to pull that out, go to exponential.church. You're able to uh, find all the scriptures there and our, our insert that is in the physical copy. You can get it there as well. All right, so before we get to Jesus' famous story, we're going to look at why he even told this story, a little bit of context behind it. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read this. An expert in the law of Moses stood up and asked Jesus a question to see what he would say. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, this so-called expert in the law was what is called a Pharisee. And we've talked about the Pharisees in the past. The Pharisees were the people that were the so-called religious leaders of the day. They thought they were better than everybody else. Basically, they were following all 613 commands that were in the Old Testament of the Bible, the old covenant that God had given to the Jewish people. But what they had done is taken those 613 commands and then added laws and rules and rituals on top of that. Things that God never intended, but then they had these extra rules. And then they put rules on those rules and rules on those rules. And it just got completely ridiculous that it became a, a burden on the people of Israel. And the Jewish people were weighed down because the, the Pharisees were very conceited and snobby and their noses were up in the air looking down on anybody that didn't follow, not just the 613 commands, but then all these extra rules that they had added on top of it. And when Jesus comes along, it threatens the Pharisees. They did not like Jesus at all because Jesus was always saying things like, well, you've heard it said in the past, but I say to you, or Jesus wouldn't even follow some of their rules and, and their, their uh, laws and commands that they had come up with. And they felt very threatened. And they're like, who do you think you are, God? And he's like, yeah. They're like, what? And he's like, I mean, I, I've got the power to forgive sin. And they're like, oh, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. And he's like, I told you, I'm God. And so they were always trying to come against Jesus. They are always trying to, to find ways to trap him, to discredit him in some way. And so when this Pharisee, this expert in the law of Moses, comes up and he asks them, he says, teacher, he's not being sincere. He's trying to trap Jesus here. But he does ask a question that's sort of on his heart. He's like, okay, 
out of all the laws, all the commands, what's the most important? How, how should I go about inheriting eternal life? How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I were to die, that I would spend eternity with God? Now, anytime you get asked a tough question, the best thing you can do is follow Jesus' example here, and that is ask questions back in return. So look at what Jesus does in verses 26 to 28. It says, Jesus answered, what is written in the scriptures? How do you understand them? And the man replied, the scriptures say to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. They also say to love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself. Jesus told him, you're right. Do this, and life will be yours. Now, that sounds easy, right? That Jesus has basically said, yeah, sure, you're right. There it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds easy, right? In fact, many churches have even made that into their sort of slogan. Love God and love people. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the deal. You can't do that. You can't love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. At least in the context of what this guy was asking. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do that. I mean, really think of what it would mean to give Jesus 100% of everything in the way that he's talking about here. That means that 100% of the time you put God's interest above your own. 100% of the time you make him the highest passion of your heart. 100% of the time he is the undisputed champion of your affections. 100% of the time you care more about pleasing him than pleasing yourself or anyone else. And then on top of that, you care for your neighbor's needs just as much, if not more so, than your own. You rejoice in their happiness. You worry about their future. You weep over their sorrows. Anybody want to make the claim that you've been able to do those things 100% of the time, all the time in your life? Did anybody even just accomplish that yesterday, on Saturday? Even when your, your mind went blank, did it just naturally wander back to, what must I do to, to please God? No, we daydream and think about all, all kinds of different things. Again, this guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do you think? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, sure. Sure, if you do that, then sure, you'll have it. But what did we just discover? None of us can what? None of us can do that. Now, should you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself? Yes, you should. But you do that out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. I talked about that back at Christmas. That this is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Every other world religion says, here's what you need to do in order to be made right with God. Christianity says, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's what has been done for you. That Jesus came and died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. Jesus came and he sacrificed his body because you don't love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus came and sacrificed his body because you don't truly love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus sacrificed his body so that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you die, you'll spend eternity with him in heaven. That's why he came. 
You can't do all these things. You can't follow all the rules, all the commands, all the the scriptures here. Because if you try to do that, you're just going to become religious. None of us should become religious people. That's a bad thing. Religion means you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again without thought as to why you're doing it. Jesus says, you know what I want from you? I want a relationship. I want a relationship. I I don't want the rules and the the regulations and the rituals and all those things. That, That doesn't please me. That isn't what I want. I just want your heart and to the very best of your ability because of what I've done for you. Now, you in turn give your life back to me where you try to love your neighbor as yourself, where you try to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength with the help of the Holy Spirit. But again, this is the part that many Christians get wrong, and this Pharisee did as well. And the Pharisee is starting to, to realize this a little bit. And so we read in verse 29, the man wanted to justify his lack of love for some kinds of people, and so he asked Jesus, exactly who is my neighbor? Now keep in mind this man's concern isn't about his neighbor. He's more concerned with his own soul, which actually is a great point that atheists bring up. I don't usually agree with atheists on a lot of things, but this is a great point that they they bring up. They say, you know what religious people do? They want to please God, and they know that one of the ways to please God is to serve and help other people. And so really, when you're serving somebody, what you're really doing is you're serving yourself. You see what they're saying there? And again, they're, they're being right. They're saying we're being very, very selfish. That the only reason you serve someone else is because you know that that's what's going to make God pleased with you. So you're really serving them because it serves your own interests. And so that, that's what's happening here. This guy's saying, you know, what do I got to do? What must I do to please God? But again, this is what makes Christianity so different. It's not about what you must do to please God. It's about what's already been done for you. But this doesn't excuse us from trying to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Trying to love our neighbor just as much as we love ourselves. But again, we do that out of gratitude for what Jesus has already done for us. Not because we're trying to earn our way to heaven so jesus though he he wants to help this guy right he he wants to let him know okay what would it look like to truly love your neighbor and so he tells this very very famous story verse 30 jesus replied as a man was going down from jerusalem to jericho robbers attacked him and grabbed everything that he had they beat him up and they ran off leaving him half dead now when Jesus tells this story and he says that this man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he is actually being literal here in the sense of it's a 17-mile road and there's 3,000 feet of elevation change to get from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, this particular road sort of took on the nickname the Path of Blood. The Path of Blood. You're going, why was that? Two reasons. Number one, this 17-mile downhill stretch was a very treacherous uh, terrain to go over, so it was very dangerous, and you could you know, fall and hurt yourself, and you could bleed that way. But the other reason it got this name 
was because you were being so careful, you were so concentrating on the road, you weren't being aware of your surroundings, and so robbers discovered that, you know what, this is an easy place to be able to hide out and then come in and sneakily attack people and rob them of everything that they have. And so that's what Jesus says is happening here. This guy is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He gets attacked by robbers. He's beaten. He's bloodied. He's lying there in the ditch along the side of the road. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, but when he saw the man, he walked by on the other side. Now the question is, why? Why would this religious person, this priest, why would he walk by on the other side of the road? Two possibilities. There may be more, but here's two I'm going to share with you. One would be that he's like, somebody beat this guy up, and maybe they're still hiding out, and when I get down to, like, help this guy, they're going to come and do the same thing to me. So the priest could have been thinking, you know what, it's just safer for me if I just keep on trucking. More than likely, though, the reason was this. Why was the priest even up in Jerusalem to begin with? Well, more than likely, it was because he had had to go from Jericho, where he was ministering at as a priest, all the way up to Jerusalem to go through a purification ritual. Now, purification rituals took anywhere from two to ten days, depending on what it was that had defiled this guy back in Jericho, that meant that now he had to go up to the temple area in Jerusalem and go through this whole purification ritual. So, think about this. He's down here in Jericho. He's you know, touch somebody that died or, you know, blood or there's all kinds of things. There was various commands in the Old Testament that said if you touch these things, if you eat these things, if you do these things, then you are uh, uh, unclean and now you've got to be purified, especially as this priest. And so he's done something like that. And again, it wasn't necessarily something wrong. It's just that now he has to go up. So he's got to do this 17-mile journey going up the path of blood. Very, very dangerous. Probably two to three days to navigate that. He gets to the temple. Now he goes through a two to ten-day purification process. He's done that. Now he's going back down the road to Jericho. We don't know. Is he one day into the journey, two days into the journey? Is he almost home? And he comes across this man alongside the road that's bleeding and half dead. If he gets down and he helps this man, guess what that does to him? It it defiles him again. So what's he going to have to do? He's going to have to go all the way back up to Jerusalem. This particular case, it would be a seven-day ritual he had to go through. Do all that. Then back down the path of blood two to three days to get back home. In other words, stopping and helping this man would add somewhere between 10 days to 14 extra days to his journey. Again, this would be massively inconvenient for him. This is already a dangerous trip. It was already going to be a time-consuming trip. And this would just add on to it. Verse 32. Later, a Levite temple assistant came to the same place. But when he saw the man who had been beaten up, he also went by on the other side. Now you're going, what's going on with this guy? Well, the Levites, they were like the JV team, right? 
Uh, the, the Levites were to priests what mall security is to real cops, okay? I'm just trying to give you an idea, right? They weren't the real thing. And so he's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He comes across this man. There he is, beaten and bloodied alongside the road. And he knew that the priest had already been coming down the road. And he's like, if the priest didn't stop to help him, then guess what? Guess I don't have to stop to help him because I'm just the JV team, the varsity team. They didn't do anything about it, so I guess I don't have to do anything about it either. In other words, he's like, my leader didn't do it. And so since he didn't do it, then that means I won't do it either, even though I probably should do something about it. It seems like something God would want us to do, but since the leader didn't do it, I guess that means I'm excused from doing it myself. Verse 33. Then a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt what? He felt compassion for him. Here's what you need to understand. And obviously, we've called this story through the years the story of the good Samaritan. The Samaritans and the Jews hated one another. They were at war with one another, which is weird because Samaritans were actually half Jewish themselves. But the full-blooded Jews, they hated and they despised the Samaritan Nittany Lions. I mean, it was just, they were, I had promised myself I was going to stop making Penn State jokes because it isn't working out good for me right now. But yet I just, I can't stop. That was my New Year's resolution. And here we are, five days in and I've already broken it. Anyway. In the same way I despise certain local teams. <laughs> That's how the Jews and the Samaritans felt about one another. They couldn't stand each other. And it was really, really bad. To make the situation worse, because the, a lot of it was the, the Jews that hated the Samaritans, um, the Samaritans lived in the area where Joseph's, uh, from the Old Testament, Joseph's uh, descendants had settled into. And the Samaritans made the claim that we're actually the real Jews and you're not. And we're the, actually the ones that know how and where to worship God. So they had built a whole uh, altar and a place of worship for God. And they said that the, the Jews in the temple, they weren't doing the right thing. So it was just, it was just this ugly, ugly mess. For the Jews, the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. Uh, basically, for the, the Jews who don't eat pork, they don't you know, even touch pig you know, and everything, that would be you know, unclean for them. They considered the Samaritans pigs, so they wouldn't even touch them. Now, in sort of retaliation, what the Samaritans would do, this is actually sort of funny, uh, they would occasionally take live pigs put them in catapults and catapult them into the temple area on high holy days so it would desecrate the temple area. Are you, are you feeling the tension? This was like, and, and it was, so it was this like racial type of thing that they had between one another. They, they couldn't stand each other and they were always at odds with one another. Uh, so this story here is so surprising that Jesus says when the Samaritan sees this Jewish man beaten and bloodied alongside the road, he actually stops to help him. He has compassion on him. Verses 34 to 37. The Samaritan cleaned and bandaged his wounds. Then he put him 
on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, the Samaritan took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. He told the innkeeper, take care of him, and if you spend more than that, I'll pay you on my return trip. Jesus asked the expert in the law, of these three men, who do you think was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the robbers? And the expert said, the one who was kind enough to help him. And Jesus told him, go and imitate his example. Now again, the reason you and I do good works isn't to be saved. It's out of gratitude that we are saved. But yet, we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We should try to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what can we learn about loving our neighbor from this? Well, there's three things I believe you can learn, and then there's going to be sort of a, a surprise ending to the whole thing that maybe you've never seen before. So number one, how, how do I truly love my neighbor? Well, that is, I am to help anyone I see with a need. The key word there is anyone. Now, anyone doesn't mean everyone in every situation. If you try to actually help every situation you come across, it's going to overwhelm you and you'll end up not doing anything. But what I mean by anyone here is you shouldn't discriminate against somebody just because of their age or their sex, their color, their nationality, or their religion. You see, our tendency as followers of Jesus is oftentimes we only want to help people that look like us. or people that we know, or people that we like. But Jesus is teaching us that we need to be willing to help anybody. And anybody means anybody. Even people we barely know. Even people who vote differently than what we do. We should be willing to help people who have brought the situation upon themselves. That you look at them and you go, well, the reason you're in that situation, the reason you need help right now is because you made stupid decisions. You did this, so I'm not going to help you. No, Jesus says, even those people, you should be willing to help. You should be willing to help your boss that takes advantage of you. You should be willing to help the illegal immigrant. It doesn't matter who it is. You should be willing to help anyone and anybody. Number two, I should help as soon as I see the need. You know, too often as Christians, we come up with all kinds of reasons why, you know, I, I can't help you right now, or this just simply isn't a good time. And the Samaritan could have done that. He could have had the attitude of, you Jews hate us, and so you deserve to have been beaten and bloodied because, you know, you're the one that's a racist, and you've done this, you've brought this upon yourself, but that wasn't his attitude at all. He decides that he's going to help. He reaches out with compassion. You and I have to do the same thing. Here's the general question that you always need to ask yourself. If I was in their situation right now, would I want help right now? Or would I want it later down the road when the situation's gotten much worse? And the reality is you always would go, man, I would want help right now I wouldn't want anybody to wait I would want as much help as I could get right now and so if you would want help right now then guess what you should offer help right now as well Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 27 to 28 writes this do not withhold good from those who need it when you have the ability to help do not say to your neighbor go return tomorrow and I'll give it when you have it with you at the time now, let me be very, very clear about something. I'm not saying to not use wisdom in who to help and exactly how to help. 
I'm not saying that you should just be reckless and, and careless in the way that you help or that you should break the law in any way. What I am saying, though, is if you want to be more like Jesus, if you're going to focus on becoming more like him here in 2020, if you see an opportunity to act, more than likely that means you now have the responsibility to act as well. Again, that's for anybody that you see, any need that it may be. You should act and you should do it quickly. Number three, I should help enough to take some of the burden off of them and to put it on the me. Think about what the Samaritan did here. He put himself in harm's way. He used his own money. He even took out a line of credit in order to help this man. In other words, he took the burden upon himself. And years later, I can't help but thinking that the Apostle Paul was reflecting back on this story when he wrote these words in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Help carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will follow Christ's teachings. Now the question some of you have is, okay, exactly how much should I give? Or is there a certain percentage that I should be able to give to help somebody? And the answer is, no, there isn't. There is no magic number for that. But you'll know you're truly following in the way that Jesus wanted you to follow when it actually starts to hurt you a little bit, when it's now a burden that you've taken upon yourself. In other words, you've given until it hurts. Now, here's the temptation that you and I face as American Christians. We've settled into this very safe, sort of middle-class lifestyle. And we go, you know what? I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying every day. I'm coming to church on Sunday. I'm involved in a life group. I must be good. There can't be any more that God would have for me to do. But listen, if you're not giving away of your time and of your resources and of your money to the point that it actually feels like a burden on you, then you're not really following Jesus, even if you're doing all those other things that I listed. We shouldn't settle into a safe comfortable middle-class lifestyle that's not christianity at all christianity is about sacrifice and sacrifice hurts sacrifice is inconvenient sacrifice is painful and so uh, again let me just say if you're sitting here this morning and you have absolutely no one in your life or or no cause in your life that that you're sacrificing so much that it feels like a burden on you that I don't know that I can give more time, that I don't know that I'd be able to give more money to the, then, then you're not really following Jesus. We're to give away our lives and our stuff for his glory and for his kingdom. All right, now, with all that said, as I start to wrap up, why is it so important then that we would love our neighbors? Well, remember that the Pharisee asked the question of, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we already discussed you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. It's all about what Jesus did for you on the cross. The entire point of Christianity is you can't save yourself. Jesus came to save you. Which is the entire reason that I believe that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of this story. You see, Jesus could have made anybody the, the hero. He's just making up this, this story, right? He could have made anybody the hero. 
He could have made it another Jew. And so he could have said, and then the third Jew came, you know, priest went by, he passed, the Levite went by, he passed. Then one of your fellow Jews, remember he's talking to this expert in law. And then he could have said, then one of your fellow Jews came by, saw this man and showed compassion to him. So go and be like your other fellow Jews. But Jesus picks for his example in the story somebody that could not have been more different than this expert in the law. One of these hated, despised uh, uh, Samaritans, somebody that was their enemy. And he makes that man the hero of the story. Here's why I think that is. Oftentimes when we hear as Christians the story of the Good Samaritan, how many of you have heard this story before? The story of the Good Samaritan? Yeah, everybody, everybody, every hand up. You've heard this before. Oftentimes what we do is we put ourselves in and we, and we start to think of, okay, am I more like the priest? Am I more like the Levite? Or am I more like the Good Samaritan? And there's nothing wrong with asking that particular question. But I think what we're doing there is we're missing the point. We're missing the point of the story. What if Jesus wants us to identify with the man who was lying in the ditch, beaten and bloodied and broken and helpless there on the side of the road? In other words, what if someone completely unlike us chose to put themselves into danger and to give generously out of what they had so that we might be taken care of? Now, some of you are already shaking your heads. You know where I'm going with this. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the good Samaritan who came to save us in our time of need. The devil, who Jesus at one point said came to kill, steal, and destroy your life, has beaten you, and he's bloodied you, he's broken you, and he's left you in the ditch of life ready to die. And then all of a sudden, somebody who we were enemies of, God, because we sinned against him. We say, God, I don't want to do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. That's what sin is. Anytime you say, God, I'm going to do my thing instead of your thing, you have made yourself an enemy of God. Now, all of a sudden, our enemy comes alongside, sees us in our brokenness, sees us helpless and hopeless, and he shows compassion on us. And he gives generously, in this case, of his very own life so that now we could be restored. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's the thing. Imagine to yourself that you are that person lying in the ditch. And you're beaten and bloodied. You're broken. Left to die. Someone comes alongside and they restore you. They help you for the rest of your life. Is there anything that that person then would ask you that you would say no to? No. You would say, you know what? You did so much for me. I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for you. You did so much for me. What is it that I can now do in return for you? And you wouldn't help that person because you were commanded to do it. You would do it because you were grateful for what they had done for you. Again, are you seeing that this is the story of Christianity? 
that you shouldn't do good works because God commands you to do good works. You shouldn't love your neighbors. you love yourself because you've been commanded to do it. You should do it because Jesus restored you. You were the one lying in the ditch. And now when you come along in life and you see people here in this Harrisburg community that are lying helpless and, and, and broken, you should say, man, I was there at one point. I was there. And I'm not going to help you because, well, I guess that's what I should do. I'm a Christian. You do it because, man, that's what I want to do. In the story here, Jesus says that the Samaritan had compassion on him. And that word compassion in Greek is the word splagna. It's a sort of fun word to say, right? Splagna. And it means to have the inside of your intestines twisted. That it's, you, you've heard that, that, that thing that, that something is gut-wrenching? That's what splagna is that it's something you feel deep inside of you, that it just grips you. Oh! Again, that's what, that's what Jesus wants from us, is that, that we would say, you know what? I was that broken person once. I was beaten and bloodied and broken by Satan, but Jesus restored me. And now when I see other people in that same condition lying there in the ditch... Oh, man, it's heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching. I can't stand, I've got to do something. It's not that I have to do something. I have got to do something about this. Not because I have to, but because I get to. I need to help. And it doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter what their age is or their sex or their race or their religion or, or how they vote or any of those things. It doesn't matter. Man, they are broken and it's my job to come alongside and help them out here. That's what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Here's what I believe. If it was a church focus on that in 2020, just to look for needs and then meet needs. I believe that just many, 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 many people will come in a relationship with Jesus. Not because of our persuasive words or because we have great arguments for why people should become Christians. They'll become Christians because of our radical love that we're showing to this Harrisburg community. That they'll say, man, those people love so radically. I need to become a part of whatever they're doing. I need that in my life. But here's what's going to take. It's going to take courage. It takes courage to give of your time and your resources until it hurts. It's going to take courage to love those that the world says is unlovely. It's going to take courage to completely rip up your calendar, to completely redo your daytimer, to have a new schedule for your life in order to love like this. See, many of you, your calendars with you and your spouse and your kids and stuff, you are just so busy that you don't have time to actually stop and help somebody because you're always just running from one place to the other. And you're like that, that priest that you're walking by and you're going, if I stop to help, man, that would be really inconvenient for me because that's going to cost me extra time. But you shouldn't look at that person in the ditch and go, man, that will cost me time. 
you should feel splagna, compassion to say, I don't care what else is going on. I have got to stop and help with this right now. And I don't care who you are. I'm going to love you in the way that Jesus would love you because Jesus loved me first. So many of you, you've got to do some serious evaluation of your schedule. For some of you, it's going to take courage to completely redo your finances. Some of you don't have the money to help people in need because you're spending it all on your own wants, needs, and desires. Again, if you're living a safe, middle-class life, you are not living the way Jesus wants you to. We should continue to give it away, give it away, give it away. It's not about how much can we accumulate. You can't take any of it with you. Keep giving it away. So let's make 2020 the year that it's less about us and more about Jesus. Let's make this the year that we truly love our neighbors just as much as we love ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to give away his life. And because he did that for us while we were in that ditch of life, sinful and broken, and because he restored us, help us now be so grateful that we can't help but feel splagna, compassion, when we see other people in our community that are hurting physically or financially, spiritually. Help us to do as a church and as individuals anything and everything we can do to come alongside and help people in their time of need. No matter who they are, no matter what they look like, give us wisdom in exactly what we should do and how we should do it and how much of it we should do. We do need wisdom in that. But help our, our automatic response right away be yes and we'll figure it out, not just automatically no like we do so many times. Lord, I pray that we would so love people in this community that the community couldn't help but to take notice and to say, there's something weird about those people. They just love and they keep serving and giving. What makes them different? I need to find out about that. And the Lord, in the, the midst of that process then, Lord, that they would come to understand that we're not doing these things because we're trying to be saved. We're doing it out of gratitude that we are saved because you gave it all for us on the cross. So Jesus, since you gave it all for us, help us now to give our lives fully back to you, not just in 2020, but all the days of our lives. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.